One principle that I'm going to go back to over and over again as we read 1 Peter, because some of 1 Peter is kind of confusing, is the plain things are the main things. We don't need to get confused. And in fact, throughout um, this letter, there's all of these supporting facts that we're going to see, this internal evidence that Peter wrote this letter. But this morning, I just want to look at Peter. Who is this man? Who is Peter. Peter was born in Bethsaida, which is a region in Galilee. He was born to Joanna and Jonah, and his Hebrew name is Simon. He was a fisherman, and his business partners were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And he was introduced to Jesus by his little brother, Andrew, who said, come and see. James, John, Andrew, and Peter They all make up one-third of the disciples. Peter is with Jesus for three years, and there are many interactions with Peter and Jesus. And in fact, we're going to see they are echoed throughout this letter, his interactions with Jesus. He echoes Jesus' words to him. There's a lot of interaction with Peter because Peter is impetuous. He is loud, he is outspoken, and he is truly over the top. He kind of becomes a spokesperson for the disciples. He was the one that if you remember, or if you haven't read this story, it's in the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament. This story about Peter seeing Jesus walking on water, and then he jumps out of the boat to walk on water. And in fact, he does walk on water until what happens? He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts to sink. He was the one who, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples the week that he was going to die, Peter said, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not going to be able to share with me. And he goes, well, then fine, wash my whole body. Peter is over the top. Peter is always putting all eyes on Peter. That same night, Peter cuts off the ear of the, high, the servant to the high priest in order to protect Jesus. And then a matter of hours later, he's denying Jesus three times. Peter's always looking at Peter. Peter proclaims at one point, Jesus, you are the son of God. And then a few moments later, when Jesus says, you know, I'm going to have to die, he goes, no, 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 you're not going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter is this conundrum, this continual, outspoken, over-the-top eyes on Peter. Peter is a piece of work. And he's always making it about himself. Yet Christ brings Peter into the inner circle. In fact, there's, a, there's this crazy, weird story of Jesus going up to a mountain with two of his disciples, and one of them's Peter. And on this mountaintop, he transfigures. It means he changes. He changes into his holy and heavenly state. And as he's doing this transformation, Elijah and Moses show up. And Peter is there. He sees all of this happening. Peter is brought into the inner circle so much so that Jesus renames him from Simon to Peter, the rock. And he says, on you, the church is going to be built. And in fact, 
Paul, who writes some other letters in the New Testament, he, is, he affirms this, and he says that he met with Peter once. Very early on in his ministry, he met with Peter, and he saw that Peter was a pillar of the church. Peter becomes instrumental in the early church as Peter goes and gives the gospel to the Jews. But even after that, even after he sees Jesus raised from the dead, even after Jesus restores him, even after, G- after Peter denies him three times, Peter is still just, he makes it all about Peter. And so on his ministry, in his ministry, there's a point where Paul confronts him for being a bigot, for being prejudiced, for not hanging out with the Gentiles when the Jews show up, but showing favoritism to the Jews. You see, Peter is a hot mess. And the more you read about Peter, the more I'm convinced of Christianity. Because there's no way that I would write a religion, form a religion, and use this guy in it. He is a coward. He is suffering adverse. He's a bigot. He's prejudiced. He is inconsistent, self-centered, and a terrible witness. I would never use him if I was writing a religion and trying to form a religion. But you see, my friends, Christianity isn't about people reaching their potential. Christianity is about saving us from ourselves. Peter's cowardice and desire not to suffer is what he is writing this letter about and out of. Peter's letter is all about Jesus. It's not all about him. It's all about how he has been saved by Jesus and for Jesus. In a way, this letter is Peter preaching the gospel to himself as he's encouraging these people in this region and encouraging us in our walks with Christ. So we've looked at who Peter is. Who is he writing to? Very early on, we see who he's writing to. It says this, to those who are elect exiles. Peter says that he is an apostle, which means that he is representing Jesus. This means that the words he's going to say next are not his words. They are Jesus's words to these elect exiles. Exiles, God's chosen people, strangers in a strange land, sojourners, travelers, if you will. Peter is writing the words of Jesus primarily to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed, their families torn apart. In Acts 2 9, which is a very important passage, in Acts 2, there's this, in Acts 1, there's this uh, event called Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls on people and they start to speak in tongues. And they speak in tongues that are known tongues to other people. And other people start to hear the gospel. In that passage, these places are named, which means that people are there and they hear the gospel, this wonderful news that Jesus Christ came to save them, and then they went back to their hometowns. Again, the gospel moves forward and can't be stopped. And that's who, G, that's who Peter is writing to, these elect exiles who are back in their hometowns believing that Jesus Christ saved them. The term elect means chosen by God from the beginning of time. 
We just read about that early on in the service from Ephesians 1 and doing that responsive reading. We talked about being chosen by God. The issue of election for many people is very hard and very harsh. That God would choose some and not others. We're going to unpack that as we look at 1 Peter. But what I want you just to consider right now about the doctrine or the belief of election is this. That election, the reason why Peter uses this term chosen or election, is a term of comfort and love. Last night I was doing the dishes and my kids were listening, watching. Gilmore Girls. And there was a wedding going on in Gilmore Girls. And I don't know who was getting married. Maybe it was Lorelai. That's the only name I know from that show. <laughs> and in the wedding ceremony, the man said, I choose you to be my wife. And she says, I choose you to be my husband. For those of you that have been married, are married, those are the sweetest words. I choose you. Being chosen brings great comfort. And I believe that the reason why Peter uses this word elect is he's driving home to these exiles. You are not alone. You are chosen. You are chosen by God, and God sees you, and he knows you, and you are his. The truth of election brings comfort and hope to those who are suffering and struggling and being persecuted because it reminds the believer that they are part of a bigger plan. They are not forgotten. They are not unseen. They are not unknown. Election that God has chosen you brings comfort and security. Peter goes on to say, you're exiles. These are elect exiles. Exile. What's an exile? Well, there's different interpretations of this word. It can mean foreigner or an alien. And I know something about being a foreigner. I know something about being an alien. Because my status in this country is a resident alien. I'm not a citizen of this country. I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain. And so I firmly believe in the statement, make America great Britain again. <laughs> I was hoping Andy was going to be here. I thought that was going to resonate with him. Many of you have heard me talk about being a, uh, a British citizen and what that means. When I first came to this country, um, as a foreigner, it means that we had our own language, we had our own customs, and we had our own values. When my family and I moved here back in 1984, I was seven years old, my father was a minister, and the church that um, had called my father to be their minister was so generous to us that they stocked a whole freezer full of beef, because beef is so expensive in the UK. And so they uh, stocked this whole freezer full of these wonderful cuts of beef. In, uh, in America, the elements to an oven, the heating elements, are on the top or on the bottom. But in the UK, they're on the sides. In America, you call a chunk of, of meat that you're going to roast a roast, right? In England, they call it a joint. So the second Sunday we were here, uh, somebody came up to my mom and said, how was your first Sunday? And my mom said, oh, it was wonderful, except I burnt the joint, and we only have joints on Sunday. <laughs> At which point, this lady was wondering, 
who they had hired to be their pastor. This is all an example that as an exile, you are different. You have a different language. You have different customs. You have different traditions. You have different values from the country in which you are placed. Peter is saying this to these people who now believe in Jesus Christ, that they are now different. They have been exiled. When you come face to face with Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ as a philosophy, not Jesus Christ in a book, not Jesus Christ on a stained glass window. I'm talking about the real Jesus Christ raised from the dead, when he meets you and sees you face to face, and when you see your sin and your need for a savior, when you repent and believe in this Jesus Christ and put all your faith in him and he becomes Lord of your life, then you are adopted into his family and made a citizen of his kingdom. And that means that now you look different in this world. You have different values, you have a different language, You have different customs. You see this world differently. You talk differently. You value differently. This world becomes strangely dim to you in the light of Christ. And then in another way, this world becomes brilliant to you in the light of Christ. Because now you see things in a different way. And exile people that live in that country. They are placed differently than the people that live in that country. As Christians, though, we are not called to abandon or curse this world. We are called to be in it, but not of it. We are to call to seek its welfare by working in it, by looking for ways to make it better. But we also need to understand that we will never be fully accepted here. This is what Peter is saying in these two words, elect Exile is the theme of this whole book, is in these two words, elect exile. You are not made or saved for this world. This is not your home. John Piper, a pastor out in Minnesota, says this, for us, this is the closest we get, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this is the closest you get to hell. But for many others who don't believe in Jesus Christ, this is the closest they get to heaven. This is not our home. And Peter is reminding the people of that. They are elect. They are seen by God. But this is not their home. Paul is writing to a people who need encouragement as they travel this world, as they live in a hostile country who does not understand them or care about them, and yet they are called to be salt and light. He does that in three ways. He encourages them in three ways in this passage. The first is this. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, we could talk about Father for the next hour, and I'm not going to do that. But he says that for a purpose, because this is not just a God who's distant up there. This is a God who is nearby, who sees these people, who sees you, and by his foreknowledge, he has placed them there. What is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is not just knowing what's going to happen. God's foreknowledge means he has ordained everything. He has planned everything. He has orchestrated everything that is going to happen. These exiles are not a result 
of God not knowing or being out of control. God is not a reactionary God. God is in full control of what's going on in your life. And that is great comfort to us. This shooting that happened in Louisville and in Nashville the other week, that shooting that in all intensive purposes, I cannot explain why that happened. But I have to believe, and the Bible tells me, that God is in control even and especially of tragedies. And even this past week, there was a video that came out of the chief of police of Nashville who said, my faith has been renewed in God as he sat in these different um, funerals and watched these children walk forward and put flowers on graves and on tombs and on coffins. And as these children responded in their grief with grace and forgiveness and love. I don't know why God does a lot of what he does, but I have to believe, and the Bible teaches us, that God has got foreknowledge, which means that God is in control of everything, especially tragedies. And he's working this all for good, as Connell read earlier in the service. And that's the second thing that Peter encourages these exiles with. He says this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's a weird phrase, sanctification of the Spirit. We don't use that a whole lot. Sanctification of the Spirit means that even in our tragedy, in our suffering, in our persecution, there's a something at power at work in us to mold us to look like Jesus. What is sanctification? My kids showed me this video of this lady on Family Feud. Remember Family Feud? And she was trying to, like, it's at the end of Family Feud where one person goes off and, and they answer all the questions and the next person has to answer the question. And she starts saying, she starts changing. She goes, Holy Spirit, activate. Holy Spirit, activate. Holy Spirit, activate. It's hilarious. That's sanctification. Sanctification is when the Holy Spirit activates in you. Sanctification is when God is at work in you to make you look more like Jesus by saying no to sin and as Caleb saying yes to obedience. That's what sanctification is. And what that means for you and what it meant for these exiles is you are not alone. God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is activating in you. I wonder when Peter wrote this, when he writes, foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, he thinks back of when Paul confronts him about his bigotry. And I'm sure that confrontation at the beginning, Peter was like, who are you to talk to me? Who are you to say these things to me? Who are you to call me out on my sin? And then as Peter went home, maybe he sat on his couch and he thought, you know, he's right. I am being a hypocrite. I am being two-faced. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. The Holy Spirit uses your friends and your family and your spouses and your children and your moms and your dads to sanctify you, to smooth out the rough places in your life. The Holy Spirit uses your suffering and your pain and your sickness and your disappointments and your depression to sanctify you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus by stirring up obedience in us and then applying the reality of what Jesus has done for us and making Jesus beautiful to us as we see that Jesus has covered us by his blood. 
And that's the last thing he tells these exiles. He says, first, as an exile, you're a part of God's plan. Second, you are not alone. Third, it's not the end. Your exile is not the end. Your exile doesn't mean you are being punished or forgotten, Peter is saying here. When he says at the very end, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of the blood of Christ. What he's drawing their eyes to is the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this, there's this day of atonement where the priest goes into the Holy of Holies and he takes blood and he sprinkles it on the, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And then he comes out and he sprinkles all the people with this blood. Could you imagine if I did that once? I was like, hey, guess what I got here? And then, you know, that's a... No one would be sitting in the splash zone, right? Like everybody's in the back. People wouldn't be coming back. It's disgusting. It's supposed to be jarring because what he's saying is now look forward. That was the day of atonement where you were sprinkled with blood of a sacrifice. Now you are sprinkled with Christ's blood on that cross, And now he says in this word picture that you are now sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that now you are in Christ. And that means that everything that is Jesus's is now yours as well. History tells us that Peter was eventually crucified for his belief in Christ. But he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy You see, Peter saw suffering as sharing in Christ's grace. He saw that his future was not here on this earth, but with Christ in eternity. And that only came from believing that Christ covered all of his sin. And that was done by grace. There are three, there are three um, themes that are going to be, that we're going to see in 1 Peter. And the first is this, that as an exile, you are united with Christ. Throughout 1 Peter, Peter is uniting the exiles with Christ. You are united with Christ as co-heirs. He's going to, we're going to talk about that next week. He's going to talk about what it means to be raised with Christ and now united with him. And now you have a living hope. Now this life can be lived to the fullest because we know that this life is not what we are living for. There's a great reminder that because we are united with Christ, that's our identity. We are no longer identified or defined by our failures or by our successes but by God's grace to us in Christ. Peter tells his readers that because you are united with Christ, you don't have to live for this world any longer. Your identity is no longer in what you do, but what's been done for you. So now you can, he's gonna say, submit to authorities. You can now live generously. You can now love your brothers and sisters and even suffer faithfully because Christ is with you. That's the second theme we're going to see. The first is united with Christ. The second is suffering faithfully. The theme of united with Christ is a major one, but suffering is just up there with it as well. 
Because to live as Christ, and Jesus said this, you need to be prepared to suffer. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says, but if you, when you do good and suffer for it, endure, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Suffering now is sharing with Christ. Our suffering is a test and a refinement of our faith and it's sharing with Christ's suffering. It kind of turns suffering on its head. Suffering's now not something we need to avoid or, or try to get out of, but now we can sit in our suffering because we know it unites us with Christ. And Peter knows that so many times with suffering, we can get so distracted. And so he says, suffering unites us with Christ, and this is all grace. And that's the last theme we're going to see throughout this book, running over and over again. He starts this letter out with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He actually ends the book the same way. In 1 Peter 5.12, he says, everything I wrote to you is true grace. The grace of God. Stand firm. The grace that holds you, the grace that loves you, the grace that chose you from the beginning of time, the grace that is orchestrating everything in your life, even the tragedies to reveal God to you, the grace that God pursues you in and weeps with you when you are suffering and promises you that it isn't forever, the grace that's coming back for you, the grace whose name is Jesus, that's a major theme of 1 Peter, and that's the same for us. The message I'm going to go over again and again is that we are, you are united with Christ and that in your suffering be faithful because Christ is with you and you're just now sharing with Christ and that you live by grace. The reason I chose this book is over the next 18 months, things are gonna get very, very sketchy for us because we're heading into an election year. It's going to become very distracting for us as there's going to be lots of talk about what we believe, the ideologies that run this country and ideologies that we should believe. And in this room, I know that there are Democrats and there are Republicans and there are people that can't vote. <laughs> and in this room, we need to come around the table of grace. We need to be able to listen and talk to one another with grace. We need to be reminded every Sunday that you are united, not by your ideology, but by Christ. You need to be reminded that when suffering comes, we all suffer, and we share in that together, and we can encourage one another, and that we live as exiles in grace, and so therefore we can have grace with one another. And that's why we come to the table. Because at the table, this is where we all come on level ground. Level ground that through Christ's suffering, you are united to him and to one another by grace. Let's pray. Father God, you have something for us in this book. And especially over this next year, where things will be tumultuous, where the devil, Peter, you said, or Jesus, you said in the book of Peter, 
The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. We don't want to be fools. We don't want to get devoured by this devil. We want to stand firm in the grace that you are the God of the universe, the one who foreknew us, who chose us from the beginning of time, the one who died for us and is now through the Holy, Holy Spirit at work in us. And so, Lord, as we come to this table now, feed our faith. As in your name we pray, amen.